text reads, speaking of Jesus, he entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. The men challenging Jesus in this account were evil. There's no way to get around that. They were more interested in their position and their self-serving theology than they were for the well-being of this man. In contrast, Jesus loves the man. He would soon die for him, and ironically, for the very same Pharisees that didn't want him to heal the man in the first place. The very same Pharisees that were trying to trap him. When Jesus observes their callous hearts and their utter disregard for one of the sheep of Israel that they were supposed to be shepherding, he became angry and grieved. I would propose to you that any other response other than anger and grief to that situation would have been inappropriate. By definition, it would have been inappropriate because our Lord was perfect. So his response had to be perfect. In that situation, it would have been inappropriate to be anything but angry and grief. I hope you see my point. He should have been angry at that situation. But we ought not to miss the fact that he was also grieved over the whole thing. The issue at hand is the appropriateness of the response. Jesus' response to that situation was righteous anger. He saw an evil. If not anger and grief, what should his response have been? What would we have expected? Certainly not what the Pharisees had, which was a callous heart, an attitude of apathy. That's not the appropriate attitude. At that particular time, it wasn't the right thing to just walk away and act like nothing ever happened. Just to ignore it. We need to observe what Jesus did. He was angry with the callous. It was a situation that deserved anger. Anything less than that would have been an inappropriate response. I hope you see where I'm going. Ravi Zacharias once said that you can tell a lot about a culture by what makes it laugh and what makes it cry. Our culture too often laughs at the things which should make us weep and weeps at the things that should make us laugh, he said. He has a point. Our culture often expresses apathy at things that should make us angry. I'm afraid Christians are guilty of this just like the rest of the culture. Francis Schaeffer predicted this a long time ago. Back in the late 70s, he said that the two core values, the two coming core values of the West would be personal peace and affluence. By affluence, he didn't just mean becoming wealthy, but 
seeking wealth at the cost of one's personal integrity. And seeking a wealth at the cost of one's personal integrity that can never be satisfied. That's what he meant by the value of affluence that was coming. As to personal peace, he wasn't referring to what we would refer to when we talk about peace or contentment. But the attitude, rather, that I don't care what's happening to my neighbor as long as I'm okay. Just leave me alone. Steal from my neighbor, rape my neighbor, murder my neighbor. I don't care just as long as I'm not affected by what's happening next door. That's what he meant by personal peace. He said those are the two coming values in our culture. When those kinds of things become central to a culture, that culture is doomed. In that way, Francis Schaeffer was rather prophetic. Because some of the things, many of the things that he predicted would come true have actually come to pass. When we see injustice, what should be our response as Christians? As people who are positionally righteous, when we see an absolute, obvious injustice, what should be our response? It should be what Jesus' response was. Anger at that injustice and grief over the injustice. I want to drive this home. If God becomes angry over injustice and evil, who are we to have apathy toward that same injustice and evil? Righteous indignation. It is possible. But the key is that righteous indignation must not get out of hand. I've had a lot of personal experience with this, and I don't mean to really be joking. I mean, I really have had a lot of personal experience because things that that are obvious injustices tend to get my goat, to use an older phrase, tend to get me riled up. But the problem I have is very similar to the problem we're going to study with Absalom tonight. It's legitimate, and I'm not just doing this to be self-serving. This comes from the text. It's legitimate to become angry at injustice. We should become angry at injustice, and injustice should grieve us. But what we can't do is take that righteous indignation and take the righteous part off of it. And then you're just left with indignation. And then what usually happens when indignation is all that's left is something that you end up regretting. I know how Absalom must have felt with this injustice that was done to his sister. And he probably started off with righteous indignation. But the righteous part's going to go away with Absalom. And all that's going to be left is hatred and indignation. And bad things are going to happen. The problem with Absalom in this narrative tonight is not that he became angry. I wouldn't give you a nickel for a a brother whose sister was raped if he didn't get angry about it. I wouldn't give you a penny for somebody like that. The problem is, is that he lets the anger turn into not righteous indignation, but unrighteous indignation and hatred and vengeance. That's where Absalom goes wrong. That's where the train goes off the tracks. That's where we all go off the tracks. When we let the righteous indignation turn to something that's not so righteous. Now, you could argue that Jesus overturned the tables for the money changers in the temple. And I would say, yes, that's true. 
he had righteous indignation and then took action, physical action against the people. But that was his prerogative. He is, after all, the Lord of the universe. That was his house. That's his dad's house, as he said. That's my father's house. And it should be a house of prayer. And you're doing terrible things in it. Because that's his father's house, because he is the Lord of the universe, he is the ultimate judge with a capital J, he had a right to do that. But we're not authorized that way. At least, most all of us are not. There are people that are authorized to take action against individuals who commit crimes. Either criminal type things, or even civil problems. There are people that are authorized, and with just a very few exceptions, that's none of us. Even a police officer is not authorized to administer justice. That comes from the court system. The police officer is authorized for part of that. But when a police officer arrests someone and administers the justice, we say that's going too far. Absalom's going to go too far. But the problem was not that he got angry. The reason I'm stressing this is that some, some of us don't understand this. And they say things that God is angry with, and they say, well, it's not right for you to be angry about that. Of course it's right. It would be wrong for you not to be angry. Absalom should have been angry with what Amnon did to his sister. But it's the action that he takes and what he let the anger do to him that was wrong. When we last left our narrative in 2 Samuel chapter 13, Tamar had been raped by her half-brother Amnon and her full brother Absalom. Her big brother Absalom was furious. There was one other person that was also furious, very angry at the injustice. And that was David. But we're going to see a huge difference between Absalom and his anger and what he does and David and his anger and what he doesn't do. Absalom had no authority to administer any justice to Amnon. But David did. David is angry, yet does nothing. And he's the one that should have. Absalom is angry, and he has no right to do anything, but he does it. You see where this is all mixed up. Verses 20 through 22, just to remind you, then Absalom, her brother, said there, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. May I paraphrase? Listen, you, you take care. Come on home with me. I'm going to take care of you. I'll take care of this. You don't have to worry about taking care of this. I'm going to take care of this for you. That's my paraphrase. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. Here's the difference between David and Absalom at this point. They were both angry. They were both right to be angry. If someone raped my sister, I would be furious. If someone raped my daughter, I would be furious. And don't even begin to try to tell me I ought not to be. The difference between the two is, although they were both angry and they both should have been, 
only one of them didn't just have the right, but the responsibility to do something about it from a judicial point of view. And that was David. David was the king. And in Israel, the king was judge and jury, so to speak. That was the system under which they lived. So David had the right, he had the responsibility to act on his anger, on his righteous indignation. This is his son, his firstborn, Amnon, the firstborn, the heir, if you will. But his son had done a great evil. And you may say, well, it's going to be very difficult for any father to administer justice to a son. If that's the situation that you're in and you can't do it, then you don't need to be king. You don't need to be on the bench. You don't need to be in that situation. If you can't do it, if you can't administer the justice, then you've got to sit down and let somebody else do it. But David's the king. You see the, the, the play that's going on here. David's the king. He's angry, but he won't do anything. Absalom has no right to do it, but he sees dad not doing it, so he's going to act. That doesn't make it right. Absalom decides to take matters into his own hands. Since his dad won't punish his half-brother, he's going to punish him. And this is where everything goes wrong. Absalom's anger morphs into hatred. Not just hatred of the act, but hatred of the person that did it. And that's different from Jesus. Absalom hates his brother. And you know things are going to go wrong. Did he speak to his father about this? Did he plead for justice with the one person that had the right to administer it in Israel? We don't know, but it doesn't appear so. The text doesn't say anything about this at all. Instead, he allowed his hatred to simmer, quiet simmer, for two full years while he plotted his brother's death. He plotted revenge. I want you to see that the murder of Amnon was not a rash act. It was a well-thought-out act. Two years was of a well-thought-out conspiracy. Then in verses 23 through 27, Now it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep herders in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servants. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, and he let Ammon and all the king's sons go with him. This place, Baal Hazor, is about 15 miles north-northwest of Jerusalem. It's supposed to be a very pretty site, but it was the site at this time of a big party because it was time to take the wool from the sheep. It's a great celebration. Oftentimes, an agricultural economy would have celebrations at the time of the harvest. That's what's going on here. So Absalom waits until it's time to get the wool from the sheep, which would be a time for a party anyway. He's planned this for two years. 
And so he goes to his dad and says, hey, listen, dad, come on up here with us, knowing that he's not going to come. Have you ever done that, invite somebody to a party knowing that they're not going to come? But at least you can say, I invited you. I invited him. That's what he's doing here. He knows David's not going to come. This is not David's thing, not at this point in his life. But he comes to him and says, hey, listen, why don't you come up here and enjoy the party, Dad? And Dad says, no, nah, no, nah, you guys, you kids go on. You kids go on and have a good time. I'm a little older at this point. I've got a whole entourage I'm going to have to bring with me. You don't want to go to the expense of having me come up there. You guys just go and have a good time. Well, okay. Oh, no, come on, Dad. You know, like, come on, 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 come on. You know what people do? And Dad says, no, no, listen, I'm not going to go, but listen, I'll bless you. You have a good time anyway. And then he pops the, pops the big question. Well, Dad, if you're not going to go, at least get Amnon to come. Now, remember that Amnon and Absalom hadn't been talking for two years. There's no way that David is ignorant of this fact. He's got to know. When there's problems in your family, even though you've got 19 sons, as we showed last time, and maybe an equal number of daughters, who knows how many, you still know that this one's not getting along with that one. Somebody had to have told David that Amnon and Absalom are not talking. So David's thinking, wait a minute. Why do you want him to go? I know you you guys aren't getting along. But this is pretty smart on Absalom's part, since he already put his dad on the spot. You know, with a come on, come on, come on, Dad. No, okay, I'll bless you. You go, you go. Dad is going to be more likely to say yes to the second thing. Kind of an old fail technique, too. So he gets him he gets him to reluctantly have to turn one thing down. So, well, okay, if you're not going to do that, at least give me the lesser of these things. Let Amnon go. Okay, okay. Let him go with you. Remember what happened with Amnon and Tamar? Who sent Tamar over to Amnon to serve him with food? Dad did. Exactly right. Who sends Amnon up to Absalom to this big party? David did. Absalom has pulled David in just like Amnon pulled David in. Or might I say, God in his irony has David complicit in both of these things. It's very interesting how this works out. There's no doubt that this was some sort of ruse. If I'm Amnon, I view this with a little bit of suspicion myself. Because I know what I've done. I know what, that my brother Absalom knows what I've done. And this is the first time that we're going to get together in two years and we're going to be away from Dad's protective care. Kind of like some of these old gangster movies that you've seen. They don't do anything till the dad's out of the way. Or they don't do anything till they're outside the city. That's what's happening here. We're getting him away from Dad. Dad's the one that's actually telling him to go. We're going to be 15 miles away. And in the ancient world, that's a pretty good distance. Today, it wouldn't be but 15 minutes, or for some of you, about seven minutes worth of, <laughs> worth of a drive. But then it was quite a distance. And not to mention, it wasn't a straight road either. It would have been up and down and rocky. It would take a little while to get there. So there, there is a, some distance between. The murder is interesting in that it's reported kind of like the rape was. Not a lot of details are given because we don't know. Kind of like an Alfred Hitchcock rendering of the murder. You don't have to give the whole thing. Your own imaginations can fill in the blanks. But then in verses 28 through 29, Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. That's pretty much the information. When he's 
when he's drunk off his keister. <laughs> and when I say to you, when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear, have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. You see why he would tell them, don't fear? This is the king's oldest son. Now, granted, they work for Absalom, but they got to figure they're going back to Jerusalem at some point and have to face the king. And I don't care who told you. Who told you to kill my boy? I don't care. Who told you? My other boy? And you did it anyway? Didn't you know you were going to have to answer to me? So no wonder they're afraid. That somehow Absalom has this sway on these people. We're going to see it next week, too. Absalom is a charmer. Real good-looking man, apparently. According to the text, he's probably the best-looking guy in Israel, the most charming person in Israel. Somehow he charms these fellows into killing the king's firstborn son. And the servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. That's the report of the murder. So they struck him. We don't know any more details than that, but we know that he's dead. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. This is not a, a funny scene at all. I can't help but think of all these sons that are already merry with wine. They see this thing happen and they get on mules and they're trying to, to gallop away. It just, it's just not like the gladiator, you know. It does seem like something different. But it's, it's, not, a, it's, it's not funny. But in verses 30 through 33, we have something that's about as far from humorous as you can get, and that's a report to the father that his son is dead. I know some of you in this room have been through this. We have some people who go to our church that aren't in this room now that have recently gone through it, where you get a knock on the door in the middle of the evening, and there's a police officer at the door that informs you that your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife has been killed in an accident. And those of you that have been through that, my heart bleeds for you. I know that it's more than just a couple of you. But this is what happens to David here. Now, there's two aspects to this report. There's the first aspect, which is really a false report. And then the actual report comes later. The false report is even worse than the reality. Now, it was while they were on their way that the report came back to David saying, you see, David's got outposts all throughout the empire to give him instant information since there's no telephone, no telegraph, no text message, anything like that. There was human intelligence, though. And the first word that gets back to David, even before the sons get back, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. Now, it's bad enough that he's going to hear that Amnon's dead, but the first report is he killed them all. Some wonder, was Solomon there? Probably not. Solomon's still probably very, very young by the, by the time this happened. I guess he could have been, but very, very unlikely. But David thinks he's lost everybody. Then the king arose, tore his clothes, and lay on the ground, and all his servants were standing by with clothes torn. Again, this reminds us of what happened. We studied it last week with Tamar. When she's violated by her brother, what does she do? She, do? she goes out and tears that garment that virgins wear, throws dust on her head, mourns. So th this is, there are a lot of parallels between what happens with Tamar and what happens with David here. There's also a parallel between what happens here and what happened a couple of lessons ago with David and the child. I hate to call the child, this is the child of the adultery since there's no name given to the child. 
He's in the same position now that he was a couple of years earlier. And Jonadab, remember him? He's the one that counsels Amnon on how to get Tamar over to his place. Just a cunning little fellow. He seems to play both sides against the middle. And Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, so this is David's nephew, responded, Do not let my lord suppose that they have put to death all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. Because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now, when I read that, I read it a couple times actually, something was bugging me about that. How does Jonadab know that the initial reports weren't true? God never tell us. But somehow he knows that it's not all the sons that were dead. It's only Amnon's children. Now, don't write any of this down. This is just me filling in some, some blanks. If I'm trying to figure out what's happening here, I wonder if Jonadab didn't know ahead of time that Absalom was going to do this to Amnon. Now, maybe I'm giving Jonadab too much credit, but I also wonder if Jonadab wasn't hacked off as what Amnon did to Tamar. He didn't send her over there to get raped. He sent her over there to perhaps get together, but not to be violently raped. I don't know what happened. But somehow, Jonadab knows, before everybody else does, that it's only the one that's killed. Now, therefore, do not let the Lord, the king, take the report to heart, namely that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Verse 34, Now Absalom had fled, and the young man who was the watchman raised his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. According to your servant's word, so it happened. This is what I mean by playing both sides against the middle. He's definitely trying to ingratiate himself to his uncle David. Listen, listen, Uncle David, it's just like I told you it was. Only Amnon is dead. It came about as soon as he had finished speaking that, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept. And also the king and all of his servants wept very bitterly, literally with a very great weeping. If anybody thought that David would be greatly comforted in the fact that it was just one of his sons and not all of his sons, you probably don't have any sons or daughters. Because the loss of just one of them would be devastating. And not only does the king weep, he weeps extremely bitterly. He's, he's not just shook up, he's very shook up. And the people, because they love him, wept with those who wept, and they wept with him. But did you notice here, especially in verse 34, that Absalom had fled? In David's mind, he's lost two sons, not one. And it's very likely that at this time in David's life, Absalom might very well have been his favorite son. And I can honestly tell you, all, I love all my children equally. I mean, just love them to death. But when you got 19 sons and probably an equal number of daughters, sometimes you tend to have favorites. And based upon later revelation, it looks very much like Absalom might have been his favorite son at that point. 
Solomon will be later. But at this point, Absalom's probably his favorite son. So you see what's happened to him. He's lost his firstborn and his favorite on the same day because as far as he knows, he's never going to see Absalom again. As far as he knows. Because Absalom has fled. David has consoled only minimally. This is extremely painful. You see, first we had the death of the child. The child that was conceived between David and Bathsheba. Then we have the rape of a daughter. And not just the rape of a daughter, but the rape of a daughter by one of your own sons. And now the third, may I use the term, installment of this discipline is that his, what is perhaps, and I'm speculating, but perhaps his favorite son murders his oldest son. And David is probably, as he's on the ground, face to the ground, weeping bitterly, probably wonders, can it get any worse than this for me? He probably is saying in his soul, Lord, I get the point. I got this coming to me. I'm not saying I don't have it coming to me, but, but sir, I get the point. There's going to be one more installment after this. This is not the end of it. But this is a tough time for David. And I personally can't help but feel for King David here at this point. Yes, he's getting what he's got coming to him. Yes, it's God in his infinite wisdom that's doing so. We can't argue with it. But boy, don't you have to feel for him. Back to back to back. Now, it's separated by two years. But still, I'm sure in David's mind, back to back to back. Now, the chapter concludes this way, and this will be our last aspect for tonight, because the next section requires way too much time to cover in just a few minutes. So I want to cover that as a separate unit. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur, and he was there three years. And the heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. There's a little bit of ambiguity in verse 37 at the end. And David mourned for his son every day. The text is not specific as to which son he's talking about. Is he talking about Amnon or is he talking about Absalom? Most Old Testament commentators believe he was talking about Amnon. But there are a few that make a case that he's actually speaking about Absalom since Absalom is the one that's still away. There's something he can do about Absalom. Remember back to the child of the adultery dying. He mourned and he mourned and he mourned and he prayed out in, the, out in a semi-public place because there was still something that he felt like could be done about the child while the child was still alive. But once the child was dead, he went in and cleaned up and the grieving process while still grieving. He was grieving internally, not publicly. Here I wonder if he's not actually grieving for Absalom, wanting to see him again, wanting to somehow restore this relationship in some way, although he just doesn't know how to do it. We're going to see that in the coming lesson. He doesn't know how to do it. He knows how he wants to be restored himself. Remember Psalm 51? He pours his heart out to God and wants to be restored. He's going to have a hard time doing that with Absalom. He's going to be conflicted because the same things come up. Amnon raped Tamar. David did nothing about it. Absalom killed Amnon. David is Again, so to speak, judge and jury in Israel. 
What's he going to do about that? He's in a pickle. It doesn't seem like there are any good options there. You know the old joke, when you come to the fork in the road, take it? Well, I don't know that that's always in your second. When you come to the fork in the road, take it. There is no good fork to take here. I don't know that he said that, but I'm going to never quote it again, that's for sure. There's no good fork here in this road. It's all going to be painful. But that's the thing about God's discipline. If it wasn't painful, it wouldn't be effective. We need to remember this. When we think that we can rebel against God with impunity. Can't do it. Bad things are going to happen and it's going to be painful when we do. Talmai is Absalom's mother's father. So this is his grandfather on his mother's side. Gesher is east of what is going to be later called the Sea of Galilee. This area is about 100 miles from Jerusalem. If you've been to Israel, you've been to this spot, most likely, or something very close to it. Absalom was gone three years. So now it's been five years since the rape of his daughter. It's been three years since the execution, if I can use that term, of his son, Amnon. This is the third of four installments of discipline in David's life for his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. It's a painful period in his life. Absalom was right to be angry over the rape of his sister. But Absalom was wrong when his indignation did not remain righteous, if it ever was. When his indignation turned to hatred, and when that hatred turned to revenge. Because the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In this situation, David, who was also angry, should have acted in righteousness and in justice, to take care of the situation of Ammon, and he didn't. Absalom, who was also angry, looked at his father's inaction and said, I'm going to take things into my own hands. That's where the train went off the tracks. That's where this whole thing went wrong. There is nothing wrong. In fact, there's everything right with being angry at injustice. Who are we to look at injustice with apathy when God looks at it with his wrath? But we cannot let Righteous indignation turn into hatred and turn into vengeance. That's where we go wrong. Righteous indignation, yes. Yeah.